Hello and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about our public conversations and how we might learn to communicate in a more human, emotionally intelligent and constructive way about the many, many things we disagree on. Every week I talk to someone who, in some ways, involved in public debates, who has some kind of public voice, to learn from them, challenge them and be challenged by them, and hopefully model a better conversation. I'm convinced that overcoming our own tendencies to tribalism and self-righteousness and building empathy with those we disagree with is hard work. It takes concentration and self-reflection. And I hope that by listening to a range of voices, people thinking about their values and saying a bit about their stories might help with this. In this episode, I spoke to Glyn Harrison. Before he retired, he was professor and head of department of psychiatry at the University of Bristol where he was also a practicing consultant psychiatrist. He is a past president of the International Federation of Psychiatric Epidemiology, which I don't really know what that means, and I only found it out halfway through the podcast. So I hope to go back to him and speak to him about his time advising the WHO on epidemiology. Meanwhile, he's author of A Better Story, God, Sex and Human Flourishing, and The Big Ego Trip, Finding True Significance in a Culture of Self-Esteem. I hope you enjoy listening. Lynn, I'm going to throw you in the deep end with the big meaty question. No chit chat, no small talk here, um, but you have had a bit of warning, so hopefully it's not too flummoxing. I want to uh, hear your reflections on what you think you might hold sacred. And for new listeners, this continues to be very poorly defined, to be honest, but some of the sort of ways into it I've used are very deep principles, things that if someone tried to pay you to give up, you'd feel that kind of disgust reflex, that sense of that something sacrilegious in that. It doesn't have to be religious. It can be um, anything that you think you've circled around or tried to live by, even if haltingly so. Well, I'm going to be a little naughty and I'm going to stick to the question, but alter the order of the words ever so slightly because, and we might want to come back to this, I, I think the question itself reflects something about society in which I get to say what's sacred. And what I'd, what I'd like to do is, is say, what, what sacred thing holds me, uh, Elizabeth? Come at it that direction. It's the same, the same, really, but just come at that, that direction. Uh, and I think there are two things um, I could mention, particularly important. Uh, the, the first is the sense of the sacred, I think, um, the sense of the numinous, the other, um, the, the sacred itself, or, or what we might call the non-rational side to religious experience. That is really important in, in my life, has been since I was a little boy. And, uh, and, and so that, that, that accompanies me through all of this, through all of the intellectual stuff, and thinking through that, that sense of proximity of, of the sacred itself um, is really big, I, I think, for me. Um, the other thing, the other thing that sacred thing that holds me is is what I let's, let's call it the Christian uh, understanding of what it means to be human. Essentially, that humans are made in the image of God. I, I I think that's deeply sacred because, of course, to be the image of God is to be sacred in some way. To see other human beings as sacred, and that that is a that's something that's very close to me too. And yeah. I ask the question and then in some ways move on for it rather than digging, not because I don't think it's important, but because it's the beginning of someone thinking about something often 
um, than ra- rather than a kind of definitive answer of what they or perhaps more realistically their community or their groups of belonging have formed in them as sacred. So, um, yeah, and I do see it very much as a, as a uh, reflection of the spirit of the age. You know, it, it's that I get to define, I, I get to construct. Um, yeah, it's it's about me in the end. So. And that, so a bit of a pushback, <laughs> I yeah. guess, against that. But It's all right. Classic academic trying to get me to define my terms. It's good. Um, so because I do think that it's something that forms us and is uh, comes through the places that we've been and the families that we've been, it, been in, um, I like to wind back to give people a sense of people's stories to locate them in a narrative. So uh, you're, you know, you're retired, you've had an illustrious career, and we'll talk a bit about that, but I want to go right back to Glyn as a little boy. Tell me a little bit about um, where and how you grew up, and particularly if there were any big ideas that you think have formed you for good or ill throughout your life. Well, um, uh, I had the weirdest childhood in many ways. Um, really happy you know I've, I've got wonderfully happy memories of childhood but i was brought up in the salvation army um and you know compared with other kids at the time i i put on a uniform on sundays i i spent my sundays playing a cornet around at the old people's homes in the afternoon or marching the streets in the morning or my as a teenager my saturday evening selling war cries in pubs from pub to pub you know other kids were when doing this, and and so I had a a, a, a deeply rooted sense of, of being different, you know, being dissonant with with culture. That that one was marked out with this bizarre Victorian uniform at the, at the time. Um, so, and yet, as I say, it was a it was a really richly textured, very working class childhood, richly textured in all kinds of ways and and certainly i you know i mentioned when i i talked about my sense of the sacred a connection there going way back to childhood and that i can remember sitting in salvation army halls and of course it was pietistic it, it, it was but but i've got quite a quite a wide emotional bandwidth i guess and so that kind of pietism met a met a need too i, I think for an emotional expression to my explain Forgive me for interrupting. Explain the term pietism for those who might not have heard it. Well, you know, it goes out of um, 18th century that the, the Wesleys in some ways were, you know, pietistic um, in, in that there's a, a, a focus on the non-rational, the more emotional. Uh, one might link it with the sense of the cosy, the homespun, the sense of uh, closeness to God that doesn't overwork things intellectually, but but is more easily and more readily satisfied with with that sense of emotional connection with God. Yeah, it's a hard one to define, actually. But, uh, so, would it be contrasted with something like a more high church, high church, more sacramental tradition? Yes, it would certainly be a simplified sense of Jesus is my personal saviour, and 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 you you'd sing along to that. It, so it wasn't structured in 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 a liturgical sense and it certainly didn't have the more you know it doesn't have the more um cognitive rational uh side of conservative evangelicalism um much more emotionally cozy and you it sounds like perhaps it wasn't an obvious thing for you to go onto this 
medical and academic career in psychiatry? You know, had members of your family been to university before? What was the journey to get there? Well, it, it was really interesting. I was the first from the family to go to university, um, and there was there were no role models for that. Uh, and uh, there's an interesting background to that because uh, my my mother was told she'd never have kids. Um, and she had a heart condition. And uh, when my father saw her father with a, you know, wanting to, said, I'd like to marry your daughter, he very seriously took him into the next room and said, you need to know she'll never have children. And then even worse, she'll never scrub floors because of this heart condition. I think not scrubbing floors was going to be worse than not having <laughs> having children. Uh, but 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 my dad, you know, he, he said, uh, well, I'll, I'll have her anyway. You know, and, but they married thinking that this was going to be, you know, a very, she was very vulnerable, never have kids. And then she got pregnant and the kid, uh, that, that, that little boy was stillborn. But weirdly, they called him Glyn. And then two or three, four more years go by and, and that's it, they think. And then suddenly she gets pregnant. And now along comes this second chance. And weirdly, they call him Glyn. Um, and so I, that burdened me through my childhood with a sense of, of being uh, both special, but also needing to prove it in some way. Um, and I think that counts for the, the sense of drivenness that, that people would, would say of me. Uh, that's, that's part of that. Um, and, and Glyn grew up with, you know, this great sense of having to prove he was special in some way. My sister came along quite a few years later, so it effectively an early child in those early days. Now, I guess you could link that with my interest in self-esteem later on, because, because it, it, it does lead you to ask at a personal level, well, on what thing do I base my sense of worth? When, when is enough achievement enough? But um, uh, yeah, so I, I, I failed the M plus boldly, uh, by that, I mean, I failed it twice. So, uh, <laughs> but thankfully, I managed to get into a very early experimental comprehensive system and worked from there into the grammar stream. And then uh, I'd always wanted to be a doctor and then made it to university. And things were going swimmingly as far as my parents, I guess, were concerned until I announced that I wanted to be a psychiatrist, which then uh, uh, didn't didn't suit at all, um, but there we were. Because it sounded like quackery. Do you think it was a kind of it was the Christian suspicion of it, or was it just foreign to them? Um, well, partly foreign, um, but but also because you're not a proper doctor, really, and, and everybody knows that psychiatrists have and still do, I think, share the stigma of their patients, and so there's that sense of you know being other. On the outside, maybe less so today. I don't know. What do you think? Um, that was a new thought to me. I do. I do find. I'd love to talk more about it. I do find the whole field quite mysterious. It feels like you have kind of psychology, psychotherapy, these ways in which your kind of average person might come into contact with, and then psychiatry, which does feel quite like something happening that you sort of want to not have to come into contact with it in your life and therefore no experience of it is good experience. Do you, do, do you have a kind of shorthand for what the field is and what drew you to it? 
No, there's no short. <laughs> there's no shorthand uh, for what the field is. Um, it 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 is. Uh, it attends to uh, the breakdown or dysfunction of mental processes, so much as a physician attends to the dysfunction of physical processes. That that is it. It it's based on the model that that the mind can go wrong in the way it is made to work, and psychiatrists are drawn into. The field with with that basic mo medical model in in mind, and and so they harness both you know medical uh, skills, medical methodology, looking for what's wrong here, and uh, grouping things into diagnoses and so on. Um, but but also reaches beyond the medical model to bring in other perspectives, you know, sociology, psychology, um, philosophy, even, and, and it was that that drew me to it. And I guess it's two interlocking questions. I'm always interested in those who have grown up with their faith, if they have had a crisis or crises or time away from it. But I guess I'm interested in particularly in the context of that field, academia in general, possibly psychiatry, certainly mental health in particular, I don't think of as uh, a a place where there are many, many Christians or where that is naturally has a culture that is very open to that religious point of view. So um, did, did was it challenging as you went into that field? Did you kind of reset your beliefs? How did it affect you spiritually? Yes, it, it, it's a, an interesting misconception, actually. There aren't many Christians in psychiatry. At, at the moment, there are, there are lots. You'll find Christians all over the place in, in psychiatry. Uh, it's certainly true that when I went into it in the I mean I, I went into it in the mid 70s at that time there were fewer and it was seen as a rather adventurous thing to do um, but I I even even when I did psychiatry in Bristol and I, I went to work there with one of the few consultant psychiatrists who were uh, committed evangelical Christians to use that label at, at the time there were relatively few. Um, there are many now in, in psychiatry, but at the time. Uh, but but I was privileged to be part of, of quite a large group of trainees around the Bristol area, the southwest area, who were also uh, committed Christians. And it, it was at the time of uh, Francis Schaeffer, there, were, there was a, a renaissance among evangelical Christians at that time of interest in philosophy, of different perspectives, worldviews, all of that was germinating. And so it was a very stimulating time to be part of it. And also, to be honest with you, psychiatry was much less threatening then because it was being assailed from many different sides as being somehow the answer to the big questions of human existence. You know, that, that's where Christians worry. They say, well, aren't you getting in something which offers an alternative view of what it means to be a human being and how we flourish as human beings? Well, how can you possibly do that? Um, but, but actually, at that time, psychiatry was being assailed from lots of different angles as, as having failed and fundamentally failing to, to be able to do that. And so you had the anti-psychiatry movement, uh, David Cooper, R.D. Lang, um, the human potential movement in in the seventies that was getting on board, and and so I, I I became involved in lots of lots of those things, and realised that all of these things gave a partial insight 
into the complexity of the human condition. None gave, were able to integrate, I think, those questions satisfactorily in, in a way which for me, ultimately and fundamentally, my Christian faith does. Um, so it wasn't as hard, to be honest, as, as many people think. Where do you think we are with the kind of science-religion conversation? I always hesitate to label it debate because one of the bugbears about it is you have this um, kind of narrative of clash, which is very overblown. But certainly, I think still for a lot of people, they're surprised when those with a scientific bent um, are also uh, religious, orthodox Christians or or, or other do you do you feel like over the course of your career, as you've seen it ebb and flow, we're in a period um, where the understanding of how these different approaches and these different fields can complement each other is growing? Or do you feel like we're still in very much a kind of binary of um, a, a materialistic or a physicalist worldview versus everyone else? Well, you know, in, in recent years, there's been a, you know, particularly with the Dawkins uh, phenomena, the new atheists, that there has been a, a resurgence of that binary, I, I think. And uh, people like John Lennox have been much more involved in making the case than I've been interested in doing. And, and, and I, I think the case is fundamentally um, the difference between the, you know, the how or the what and, and the why. I, I think that still is the is the critical difference between the questions that science can answer and the questions that faith can answer. And I, I do see them as being complementary modes, complementary ways of thinking about life. So I, I, it, it hasn't greatly worried me. I, I, I think there are some, some really challenging areas. You know, I, 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 I think that I think to, to reduce the, the, the question to, well, science it talks about the what rather than the why, but but actually evolutionary science, for example, and and, and um, evolutionary psychology does try to explain a lot of the why as well. So it so it tries to explain why we're religious. It's because we are we survive when we see hidden connections between things. We're more likely to be alert to potential threats where we're sensitive to hidden connections. And therefore, religious faith is a byproduct of that evolutionary phenomena, that, that ability to survive. So when people say to me, it's very simply about the difference between the why and the what, I, I think it's, it's not quite as simple as that. Evolutionary psychology can, does try uh, to answer quite a bit of the why as, as well. So I don't think it's simple. I think it's an ongoing conversation. But the more you know about science, to be honest, that I feel the less troubled you are because, of course, you know its limitations. Um, and certainly that you were seeing it in public health at the moment with epidemiology. That, that was my particular interest, epidemiology. And uh, the more you know about epidemiology, the more you, you quake at the moment when you hear government ministers saying, we follow the science, you know? <laughs> the science, as if there is such a thing as the science, the there are numerous science, scientists and epidemiologists with their models and the different assumptions they put into the models and the, and the status hierarchies and the jockeying position and all of the ego and all of that goes on in this. And of course, if you're in that world as I, as I was, you, you've got to take some of, you, you've got to take some of that with a pinch of salt, some of that arrogance of science. 
science, you know. What's your prediction about what the role of science and the role of expertise will be? Because I think the way I've heard it narrated is we were kind of, we were done with experts or at least some, some you know, Michael Gove, just one person we can quote, um, but that people feel the longing for certainty and for objectivity and that actually this might be a time for the resurgence of experts but you and other scientists that I've speaking to are saying almost that could be a poison chalice because this is right at the edge of science's ability, you know, fast moving, fast changing, novel, no existing longitudinal data, you know, that uh, if this is what science is judged on, it can't help but fail. What's your kind of hunch? Well, um, you know, um, science is always a tool of the humans who are involved in it. You know, ultimately, how we use the findings that we produce is always going to be sensitive to the way humans want things to be and to see things. Um, and particularly the more complex the questions. I, I, I mean, the rigors of the scientific method, of course, which, which are there to um, prevent those biases of, of, of human, you know, what... What, what we want to be the case. Um, uh, you know, the scientific method is there, is there to be objective. It works very well with, at a physicalist level and, and, and the, in the area of, say, physics, and chemistry and, and matter. But where you've got more complex questions of human behavior, um, then uh, the certainty, the confidence interval around your estimates widens and uh, we are making lots of statements at the moment without qualifying just how large those confidence intervals are and uh, so I, I think science is always a tool that will be used and also misused by human beings and these things ebb and flow so when it suits us we, 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 we curse the experts but now it very much suits us to have the experts as a cover and uh, and so they're back in. So I, I think it's a rather good example of, of the, what we might call the politicization of science. You know? Yeah. Um, you wrote a book called The Big Ego Trip in 2013. Looking at it now, it seems to me to be quite prescient because I remember when it came out thinking, oh, that's an, that's an interesting thesis. And then a few years later, it becoming, and maybe this was just the trickle down to lay people like me, but it, it became obvious that there was a growing consensus of the damage that the kind of self-esteem movement had done and that the social science that that had been based on was questionable and that it had kind of deep reaching effects in education and in parenting. Did you feel at the time like you were saying something that needed to be heard and, and wasn't generally understood or was I just late to catch up? Well, um, I, you know, I, I was definitely riding a, a growing tide of discontent in, uh, in in psychology, but although a lot of you know, even until the turn of of, of the millennium, the top three topics of uh, you know, if you look at the the topics that were most published on in psychiatry in psychology, self esteem was still up there in the top three. So there's a huge amount of literature generated but there's also a growing sense of unease about this whole thing um and there, there was quite an important review carried out by um 
uh, Roy Baumeister, an American psychologist, who started his career actually as a great advocate of self-esteem, but but he then uh, put a more objective hat on and and went through it. It wasn't a systematic review, so it it's not perfect by any means, but it it was a good and comprehensive review. And he said if you look at efforts to boost self-esteem where where these have been evaluated systematically in terms of the promises that have been made you know boosting your self-esteem will uh, improve educational outcomes mental health outcomes um general social well-being why the governor of california in in the mid-80s even thought that if they could institute this this uh, statewide self-esteem thing it people would pay more taxes, you know, it would, it would be so good for us. And so you have these outrageous claims that were made and it was only relatively late in the day, I think 2003 when Baumeister got around to doing that, that someone says, hang on a minute, if you look really carefully at the trials that have been carried out, there's just no evidence that this, let's call it boosterism, boosting the ego actually works. Um, and, and then there was a really interesting paper trial carried out by uh, Joanna Wood, who's a psychologist in Ontario, Canada. And she, she carried out a trial in, in which she, she um, created three, randomized to three groups of, of subjects. And she carried out a raft of psychological measures at baseline and then at three and six months. And I, I talk about this in my, in my book, but um, Joanna Wood uh, gave the first group a bunch of these self-affirming statements. And there's been survey data suggested up to 50% of North Americans use these self-boosting statements at least once a week. And, and that had been around in the, in, the, in the early 2000s, late 1990s. You know, I'm special. I bring energy and dynamism into whatever room I enter. You know, I'm confident. I'm full of all of those things. And, and you can, I think you can still download these or, or get a load of them from the American Self-Esteem Association, you know, it's self -effort. And she tasked that group, the members of that group, with having a kind of a selfie quiet time for 20 or was it 30 minutes a day in which they uh, focus on those statements and seek to appropriate them for themselves in a positive way. The next group was given the same statements and asked to evaluate them and with, with, the, with the phrase, how is this true of me and how is this not true of me for 20, 30 minutes? And the third group was no, nothing at all. Then she followed them up three and six months later. What she found was that the change happened in the first group and people who measured themselves as having low self-worth at the beginning, who had very negative views about their worth and significance, at the end of this period, actually felt worse about themselves. Their, their self-esteem was lower. And she used the phrase, she said, the, the, these self-affirming statements, it's extraordinary that after four decades of the self-esteem movement, A, nobody has really got around to doing this kind of evaluation. But B, it's so clear that these help people who already feel good about themselves feel better. So Donald Trump would feel terrific after this 20 30 minutes and lots of people would um but but people who who you might think really need them feel worse they backfire she said for the for the people who need them most and of course the reason for this is because it is just your own propaganda 
the, the self is attempting to define itself, which, which is the flaw at the heart of the whole project of self-esteem, I, I think. And indeed of, of, of what identitarianism today or identity, it's the, it's the self attempting to define itself. I think it's a, it's a psychological cul-de-sac. It, it is a dead end because you'll never know whether it's enough. You're never sure whether you've got there um, and whether you can trust your own judgment. At least that the evidence certainly points that way for worth, self-worth. And at the same time, psychologists like Jean Twang, Twang were, were, were mapping the increase of narcissism in society and linking that to boosterism. Uh, Jennifer Crocker was showing how people who are becoming excessively focused on maintaining their self-worth in this way, you know, think boosting themselves in this way, their empathy levels go down as well and, and a number of adverse outcomes. So evidence was accumulated. Not, not only does it not work, it actually may harm. And that really concerned me. And I wanted to write something for Christians particularly because I I, I thought I, I, I was seeing a lot of uh, pop Christian pastoral care piggybacking onto this. You need to love yourself. You know, you've got to focus on you, this kind of uh, mentality. And I, I, I think, you know, you're so, imp- you're so special, Jesus died for you. Um, and, and the cross itself is appropriated in service of the self. Yeah, and I, I, I thought I, I wanted to write about this. So that's how I got into that, that book. So one of the divides that, we, uh, that I'm interested in, in terms of kind of divided public debates, is the intergenerational one. And um, it's not just intergenerational. It maps a little bit politically as well. But there is a definite sense in which... Um, so the narratives I'm thinking of are the kind of snowflake narratives and the uh, speaking of um, particularly millennials, uh, top end Gen Z um, as just a bit more fragile, um, a, you know, generation selfie, the iGen, those kind of narratives, some of which I'm sure has very good and robust research around and some of which seems to me to be kind of sneery and dismissive about a generation that have faced kind of practically quite a lot of challenges in terms of the way the world's the world they expected um has been set up and full disclosure i'm a kind of elder millennial so i sit on that axes and um as i do with many things i feel like i have a foot in both camps but do you and i get you know do do how much do you? How much truth do you see in that narrative? And there's some serious voices um, speaking about it and speaking about the necessity of kind of rebuilding in resilience, rebuilding in anti fragility, um, and moving away from you know the iGen, the selfie culture. Do do you see it? Does it worry you? And if it does, what, what might we do about it in a way that's not just blaming and finger pointing? Yeah. Um... It it really does concern me. I, I do think there's something in it. Um, not as much, I think, as, as you quite rightly point out, Elizabeth. Not not probably as much as some people would would like to think. In in that the the epidemiologist in me, the scientist, says, well, you know, if you look at the hard data, for example, you'd see claims that depression is on the increase. You don't know, and 
anxieties on the increase. Well, certainly people are using services more. That I mean, just look at university counselling services. I think there's pretty good evidence coming from there that they're being near overwhelmed with mental health issues. But uh, you know, as you know, uh, this doesn't mean that the true prevalence of those issues is increasing. It could be just that the, we're more ready to come forward with them. So I, I'm not the kind of person who would say, oh, yes, we all know that the depression's on the increase as a result of boosterism or as a result of, 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 of this emphasis on, on the self. Having said that, I, I think there is some evidence of increasing mental health problems at a true prevalence level, uh, certainly in, in the sphere of self-harm, uh, in the sphere of some identity-related issues such as uh, eating disorders, borderline personality, possibly. I, I mean, the epidemiology is always difficult to really pin down, but, but I think there is some evidence of, of increasing uh, mental health issues, which, which I certainly think it's plausible to link to this cultural shift toward uh, an absorption with, with ourselves and with our own worth and significance. So, um, so, so, yeah, I think there's, I think there's something there. Um, I, I think it goes much deeper than than it being a, a, a recent cultural. Phenomenon. I, I think what's wrong is the way we're trying to to deal with it. Um, let, let, I, for example, Francis Fukuyama's book um, on identity, I think it's a wonderful book myself, and I really think he's on to something where he says, that, you know, the root of our tribal, today's tribalism, uh, identity politics is really the human struggle for recognition, the desire for significance, the desire that, that not only we, we have significance, but that other people give us significance. And uh, it's not particularly new. It goes back to Adam Smith. He said exactly the same thing in 1798. You know, it's the desire to be noticed, to be seen that drives economic ambition and activity. So um, th this is deeply rooted in the human condition, the desire to be known and seen. Um, and I, I think the, the good psychological evidence for that, for that um, yeah, Mark Leahy's experiments, which show how we are highly sensitive to what other people think about us, and our own sense of worth goes up and down depending on how we measure other people's esteem of us. So that there's a lot in this, and you can see the genius of the self-esteem movement comes along in the fifties and sixties, and says this is a problem if you hitch your sense of inner self-worth and significance to what other people think of you, uh, then, you, you know, this is contingent. The, the, you, you are always going to be uh, subject to, to uh, issues, changes outside of your control. Here's what you need to do. You say how much you're worth. Detach yourself, uncouple yourself from other people's approval. And you declare your own worth. So, in a way, it's a, it's a masterstroke. It it does seem, you know, there's a logic to it. The only problem is it doesn't work, as as we've seen. And I think what's happened is, as boosterism um, also actually created uh, or, or gave more encouragement to expressive individualism, the whole 
sense of I, I not only declare my worth, I declare my identity, I say who I am, I get to define myself. As that movement got underway in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and, and I mean, it's now in every Disney movie, a popular culture, it, it's all around us. Um, the, the, the magic of that offer, you know, you say who you are, it's still there, it's still highly seductive. But the fact that it doesn't work in the end drives us back again to the very thing that we were seeking to avoid, seeking other people's approval. Or it leads us to withdraw and protect ourselves from criticism, from, from their disapproval of us, in order to preserve this esteem, which, of course, is, as Joanna Wood shows, is so fragile. Um, and I, I think that's a very plausible explanation for, for the snowflake phenomenon. I, I, I don't like that term because it is pejorative. But, you know, this vulnerability phenomenon that we're seeing around, as well as the anger out there, that you have no right to disapprove um, of me in that way and thereby to, to lessen who I am as a person. Um, so I, I, I think there's some really interesting cultural streams in play yeah. uh, at the moment um, it's so interesting isn't it that that i just and i feel it and i see it that hunger for other people to tell us that we're okay which is what makes when we have these dis deep disagreements about big things so difficult to navigate you know i've had conversations with people like james carey about women women in leadership and how difficult i find to talk about that because it's not just a um externalized theoretical debate and if it's race or gender or any of those things that the the way we conceive of identity right now which comes with strengths and weaknesses does seem to make those differences more um inflammable more liable um yeah to hurt us really and it just makes me think i want to learn how to navigate them with kindness and with care but not with fear and it seems to me we've got, you know we're either scared and withdrawn or we're coming out fighting and the kind of whatever it is the formation the discipleship to be kind of to be able to that I've been reading about distress tolerance in the kind of parenting world of what are the techniques that we can use to manage our fight or flight makes always makes me think about Jesus and turn the other cheek um anyway that's possibly a cul-de-sac the last um thing i want to talk to you about is sex so the reason the reason this come has come up well, one of the reasons is that we did a big study of universities and it was partly in relation to this narrative, this, you know, oh, safe spaces, aren't these students terrible at dealing with free speech? We must, you know, we must sort out these terrible students, basically, which always slightly, whenever there's a kind of moral panic and you've got a room of researchers, it always kind of raises an eyebrow and they go, what's actually going on? Let's go talk to some people. And so we did a big evaluation, a big um, study of mm. particularly faith and belief societies on six different campuses because they're often the sites of these deep disagreements. Them and the feminist society basically is where you get controversies. Um, and we broadly, we found actually that, that, that there is quite a lot of moral panic, that mainly students are navigating this quite well, given that they're, you know, 18, 19, 20, and there's quite complicated governance issues, that there's no particular reason to be massively more alarmed than um, Previously, there's a few things that would help them, but um, it was it was mainly a kind of it's not a bigger problem as we thought it was. But we did find a, a kind of small effect, particularly around socially conservative views, that th those students who held those um, 
didn't feel able to express them and didn't and felt like there was high social stigma around them. And I kind of don't want to get into the details of it, um, but it, that I, I kind of wanted to talk to you about it. And I, uh, the other thing that's triggered it is I invite a whole range of guests and those who are politically conservative and those who are socially conservative seem much, much less likely to say yes to me. Um, and uh, I'm interested by that. And I think maybe the sacred sounds a bit woo-woo, possibly. Uh, maybe the Theos network is pretty connected in with academic networks, which has a particular centre of gravity. I don't know. I'm interested in it. Um, but you would define yourself as broadly socially conservative um, in so much, I would guess, as you take sex seriously and you think that long-term covenant commitment is good for well-being. Um, do you feel, do you find it difficult to talk about that in public? And what do you th think the effect of that is generally? People are keen to define me in all kinds of ways, yes. No, well, well, but it's a fair, I suppose, a fair description in terms of where we are at at the moment. I, I just say I, I'm a traditional, you know, I, I, I'm in the, in the, the mainstream of, of what Christians have have thought down through the the, the the centuries and and what most Christians probably and Orthodox Jews and Muslims uh, believe today about that there's something sacred about sex and that sex is God's gift uh, to be enjoyed as part of our fruitfulness and his gifts in creation uh, within the covenant of marriage so that that's what I um, but but I I do think therefore that that there is some common ground to be honest with with people who take a different view in, in that today most people i think would agree or come back to me if, if, if you disagree elizabeth but they would agree there's something sacred about sex there is something about it if the me too movement tells us anything it's that there's something sacred you know you touch you touch i'm sorry you touch me and um and it goes to to our whole understanding of what it means to be a human being and and um, I, I think being made sexual in the image of God, being the bodily image of God made sexual is something that, that for me is, is very is deeply sacred. And I think I'd share that with someone who has a different view. And in that sense, we common ground, although we disagree about, you know, how, how you do sex well. Um, I do share that, I, I think, and appreciate it. You, um, your book... Uh... Forgive me, I have, I've got it written down here, but I, a better story about sex and human flourishing. You uh, you kind of raise questions about the way changing attitudes to sex have um, contributed to some harms, but you also are really clear as a Christian how much good came out of the sexual revolution, and that was an interesting thing for me to read about. What what made you think it was really important to say that? You can't not talk about it. And, and so I, I find myself, you know, quite grateful to the sexual revolution because there is something important. It, it goes to the very heart of who we are, the desire for intimacy, the desire to be fruitful, to make more of the world. It is, the desire for relationship is, is deeply woven into what it means to be made in God's image. So I, I think it's an opportunity for us not to fight back against the sexual revolution, but to take it on the chin and say what is this saying to us about what we got wrong and that was certainly my own childhood experience nobody talked about um i i i, I came into awareness that, that i was made sexual all by myself 
or stuff I learned at school with, with all of the others. And this isn't good enough. And I, I, I think the sexual revolution in telling us that does us a huge service. And, and I think simply to lock horns with it uh, simply perpetuates our problem. And our problem is we know what we're against, but what are we for? That's the question. Uh, and, you know, we know what we don't agree with in the sphere of sex, intimacy. But what, what do we agree? What, you know, what, what is our vision of what? you know, why we, what sex is and, and why God has made us this way. So um, I, th I think by making us go back to those questions, it does us a big, um, a big service. And it does a lot of kids a big service today where we're able to say to parents, you know, you need to start talking about this whole area with your kids at five, six, seven, eight, uh, because the sexual revolution out there was, is surely talking to them subliminally through images, through its messaging. Um, and if we're to in any way offer something alternative, a different story, then it needs to start early. Um, so what are we for? Well, as what we're against, that's the question. I was going to ask what you've learned about engaging across difference, but we're out of time. So I'm going to take that last sentence. When you engage across difference, talk about what you're for as well as what you're against, because I think that's a pretty good principle if that's not um, taking liberties. Glenn Harrison, thank you so much for talking to me on The Sacred. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. The producer of this episode is Soup Shop Productions, and it is a project of the think tank Theos. We'd really love to hear your thoughts, whether via Twitter at sacred underscore podcast, or me at Theos Elizabeth, or thesacredpodcast at gmail.com if it's easier to write in long form. As always, please do rate and share so others can find the podcast. We're also now available on Spotify, so it's even easier to take the sacred with you wherever you go. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos, you can connect via the website at theosthinktank.co.uk.